I'd like to thank all of those who worked so hard last week with VBS and it turned out really well. We got a, a lot of uh, youngsters coming in and a uh, limited amount of help, but the ladies pulled it off. I want to thank you, Yolanda and Miss Pearl, um, my girls as well, and Jasmine, she's not here, and Daisy um, as well, and just all the hard work uh, that everybody put in to make it possible uh, to see that these young ones were um, being fed the Word of God and just being loved and being cared for and valued in it. It's the first time we've ever done a VBS. And a shout out to Trey. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's another, yeah, Trey. Yeah, yeah Trey, thank you so much for all of your investment. Trey, Trey's like the trooper, right? He is, my, my wife is telling me that he has got this um, gift, this talent with, 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 with kids. And she said at one point there was 30 children around him and he had every one of them held captive, listening to his every word and obeying his every word. And you know as well as I do, for someone to be able to do that, have that kind of ability with young people, uh, it really uh, is an extraordinary gift that the Lord gives us. So thank you for all your hard work and coming here, showing up and, you know, and, and doing all that. We, we love you and we're very thankful for you. So um, with that being said... I won't drag it out any longer. Turn your Bibles to the book of Romans as we continue through our study of the book of Romans. We are going to be finishing up today chapter 14. We'll be starting as well in verse 14 today. And I believe we'll be finishing with verse 21. been a really nourishing time for me uh, going through the book of Romans. I, I mean, obviously, we've, we've only scratched the surface. You know that. I mean, the infinite amount of knowledge and wisdom that flows from God's Word is just, I mean, we have just scratched the surface with this book. Really, it's just been a, uh, just a touch and go with the book of Romans. But what we have heard, what we've studied, and what we've applied has sure been a blessing. Chapter 14... Um, starting in verse 14. I'll be reading from the New King James Version this morning. Verse 14. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean to him, it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. 
But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Let's pray. Lord, we're we're astonished this morning at your grace. And Lord, we are unworthy. And it is only the, the blood of the Lord, the blood of Christ, that makes us worthy to come into your presence this morning. Lord, we come to the throne of grace to exalt you. We come into the household of God to worship you, Lord. Lord, we just pray, Lord, to the Spirit of God that he would would sanctify our worship today. He would sanctify the preaching. He would sanctify, Lord, the worship of the saints, Lord. That our worship wouldn't be false and fake and plastic, but we'd be genuine, Lord. We're here to truly worship God, to truly love Christ, to truly hear his word preached, and to be faithful and obedient to what he has called us to be as Christians. Lord, thank you for your for your bride. Thank you for the local church here today, Lord. Thank you for all of those who are here today in attendance. Thank you for all the hard work that goes into the preparation of making this happen on Sunday mornings. Thank you for the beautiful worship. Lord, just thank you for the the reading of your word. And thank you for the preaching of your word. And thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Lord, we are so blessed and grateful. We have so much to be thankful for, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing here, Lord. In the blessed name of Christ, I pray. Amen. This morning, I'll be picking up where Brother Sean left off. And when dealing with this chapter, because of the nature of it, you cannot just speak on a few verses. You have to look at its entirety as a whole. All these verses from the beginning and to the end fit perfectly like a puzzle. I haven't preached on verse 1 a couple weeks ago, which bled into the first six verses. And then Sean basically reemphasized Paul's thoughts on Christian liberty by examining and exegeting and expositing these verses up to verse 13. So realistically, we are still running uh, the same course of thought as we continue through these verses. I don't want to sound redundant this morning, but I do want to focus uh, on a few key points of what Paul's trying to communicate through these remaining verses. So what is basically, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is basically happening here as we have uh, been working through this chapter? Well, for one thing, we come to the realization that it's not primarily about meat and wine and and certain days. Um, It's about the gospel. You've got to understand something. Um, Ultimately, the pinnacle and apex of our faith is Christ. It's the gospel. The highest level of achievement of worship is, is Christ. And, and not only just being belonging to Christ, being converted, but also the, the proclamation, the preaching of Christ to other people. And anything that interferes with that worship, because if that's the highest attainment of worship, if we're all up here singing and we're all up preaching, but we're not preaching Christ, it's all in vain. You see what I'm saying? So if there's anything that hinders that reality, 
it can be a major problem in the gospel and can literally cripple the church and cripple the message that we bring to the world. This is why it's so extremely important that we're dealing with these issues of meats and foods and all these things because, as you know, human nature, the sinful nature of humanity, gets so easily distracted into other things that really ultimately are not the gospel. And these are dangers in which we will talk about as we proceed through the chapter. These verses definitely point to the problem areas within the church, especially when dealing with maturity and immaturity. The weak and the strong believer. What is Paul's message and what is he so adamantly trying to convey to his readers? Paul understands the dangers of being a new believer. And even the danger that immature believers may have upon others and have upon mature believers. Believe it or not, most of the issues that you face within a congregation aren't necessarily just false converts. But a lot of times, it's brand new Christians. We call it, the in the Reformed community, we call it the cage stage, right? It's, it's, it's this, you know, we come in with this zeal. And sometimes our zeal is above our knowledge. And a lot of times, the attacks that we have... It's usually against others who are experiencing a biblical form of Christian liberty. To them, everything seems sin, and they attack everything, and they turn things into something that it's not. And if they're not careful, they can wander off and turn it into a false gospel. Very, very, very easy to do. And this is really Paul's addressing to the mature believer, saying, be careful. Obviously, understand uh, what you're dealing with. You, you may not have a problem um, with chewing on this piece of meat, you know, that obviously um, may have been um, something where the other person believes has been offered to an idol or just doesn't eat that kind of meat or drink that or do this or whatever it may be. Um, you're trying not to avoid this uh, immature believer, the younger, weaker brother, so he can grow in grace and his, and his, and his faith isn't shipwrecked or stifled or his faith isn't ruined over a silly piece of meat. And we can, we can easily get diverted, can't we? Over, over things and, and turn into the gospel and completely annihilate another brother over a piece of meat, right? Or it might be a head covering. It may be something that we think is like primo gospel and it's not the gospel at all. I mean, obviously, the gospel and the love of, the, of Christ, out, the outpouring in our lives, can be seen in many different ways and how we worship and the, the expression. But the reality is, is that when we turn on each other because one person, for whatever reason, isn't doing what we want them to do, it can be a major problem in the church. In verse 1, he says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. And this is really what he's dealing with. This is really the premise to the entire chapter, is really dealing with doubtful things, disputing over doubtful things, getting in angry fights over things that really have nothing to do with the gospel. Obviously, we know that the gospel reaches every arena and every facet of life. We know that Christ is our sovereign ruler, and he infects everything. He's in control of everything. But the reality is there is a particular gospel, right? There is an actual gospel that isn't broad in the sense to where we just accept everything, we do everything, everything's tolerable. There is guidelines into uh, to the gospel that we preach. And Paul is very adamant about the way that we uh, we operate within the local assembly to one another when we're dealing with things like 
meats and all these other things. And Paul is also, we're going to get into this, is dealing with this because of where he's at as well. The culture in which he's preaching. He's in Rome. So he's dealing with a lot of these issues of new converts coming in. But you also got to understand something. You got to understand where these people are coming from. They're just a bunch of uh, blank robots coming into the faith. They're coming out of a world that's been stirred up in all kinds of ways. Could you imagine living in the times of Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Rome? I mean, we think our culture's bad, right? We think our culture's perverted. I mean, we think that our culture's bloody, which, which it is. But think about the days in, in Rome where a lot of these things were, were happening out in the open, out in the public. Think of the gladiator matches and just the endless bloodlust and people just getting all worked up into a frenzy and they demanded more and more and more and they just couldn't get enough. I mean, this was the kind of reality that he was dealing with and, and, and just, the, just the idol worship. and I mean, it was just, it was amazing. And then you had these people coming in to the body of Christ and they come in with some presuppositions that aren't always biblical. But, you know, to the, to the experienced mature believer, Paul is writing, chiefly because the mature brother is usually not disturbed by these things, not disturbed by meat or festivals or holidays. He is, what the Bible says, he's rooted and he's grounded in Christ. And that's where we need to get to today. With our lives, we need to see whether any of these things are in our lives. And our goal as believers is that we're rooted and that we're grounded in Christ beyond anything else. Paul is convinced that by the Lord Jesus, that there is nothing unclean of itself. That it's about the heart. It's about the motive of worship. It's really, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's really not about us. True worship isn't about singing songs. It's, a, it's really an attitude of the heart towards God. It's walking, as the Bible says in verse 19, walking in love before God. It's demonstrated in our behavior towards one another. In verse 17, knowing that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And this is Paul's argument here. Not necessarily an argument, but this is really the, the point that he's trying to drive home is that, listen, our worship ultimately is, 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 is we understand it correctly, is not built on the things that we eat and the days that we celebrate. All these things are important to us as believers. We have our convictions, and there's nothing wrong with having convictions. There's nothing wrong with feeling strong about the Lord's Day. But the reality is, is when the Lord's Day has become your Christ, that's when it becomes a problem. When your festivals have become, you talk more about your festivals and your feast days than you talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. I've, I've known people who get so wrapped up in these, these um, what were called a Torah observant movement. And, they, and they would be, they would, you would never hear the name of Jesus. You'd never hear the name of Christ. All you would hear is it's Sabbath. All they would talk about is the Sabbath. Every conversation was baited into the Sabbath. It's all you ever heard. It's like, all I hear from you is you talk about the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the Sabbath. So that really ultimately is your Christ. Because what you're telling me is it's a salvific issue. If I'm not, if I'm not keeping the Sabbath according to your view on the Sabbath, then I'm lost. I'm lost. Do you understand something that 
I lost because, first of all, I'm a radical sinner against God that violated his commands. But the ultimate reality is, is that it's not me taking on and following your precepts for that day is going to make me a Christian. Only Christ, only Jesus, who is the day without beginning and without end, who brings salvation. Not this certain day, this obsession with the Sabbath isn't going to save you from the wrath of God. And these things become obsessive. Meats become obsessive. Dieting becomes obsessive. It's, it's these certain things that we are truly convinced that, hey, you know what? These things in them are virtue. And these new converts were coming to faith, and they were bringing some beliefs along with them. So, therefore, Paul is really addressing in verse 18, true worship. What does true worship look like? And he says this, For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. He's telling you, basically, what makes you acceptable before God. Serving Christ, being born again, uh, being in the family of God. These are the ultimate things at the end of the day that make you approved by God, acceptable to God. Romans 14, 7 says, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that, we, that he might be both Lord of both the dead and the living. Philippians 1.21 echoes that statement, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The original Greek says, For me to live Christ, to die Christ. Basically, he is the complete package of our existence. He encapsulates our entire being. Whether in life or in death, we are made complete in Christ. And this is why Paul says, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not going to stand before your judgment seat. When I die, I'm not going to stand before you. Okay, I'm not going to stand before uh, another pastor, another person. I'm going to stand before God. I'm going to stand before Christ. And it is that very reality that we need to all understand in our conversations with one another before you're so quick to judge another brother for the things that he has found liberty in. Just be mindful. Be mindful. We're, you know, maybe there are new believers and weak believers. We always want to be sensitive. We always want to be careful. We always want to be really careful. And because you don't, you don't want to call yourself a mature believer and say, well, I don't care. And you're walking around with a beer in your hand and, uh, you know, this and this and this. And you have no thought of another believer who may look at that and go, wow, you know, um, I was an alcoholic or blah, blah, blah. I struggle with that stuff. I struggle with those things. And really, ultimately, that makes you an immature believer, if that's your behavior. So mature believers really, uh, as a warning from Paul, is that we need to be real careful uh, with our comfort in Christ. In the sense, we can have all the comfort we want, obviously, within the context of our own lives. In the sense, I'm not talking about sinning, by the way. You all, I hope you all realize that. But in the things that you allow and the things that you don't allow may be different from another person. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So that each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, 
not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Obviously, Paul does not have a problem just so we're on the same page with stumbling blocks. Okay, because stumbling blocks, you know, are something that the Lord didn't even have a problem with. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, the Bible says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, or a cause, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Christ is to them who are lost, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. Paul has no problem with preaching Christ crucified, knowing this is offensive to the world and can be offensive to many even today that profess to be Christians. But the stumbling Paul is dealing with here is that of causing those of the faith, the household of God, to fall or sin because of the lack of sensitivity to a weaker brethren. So we have to understand that stumbling blocks, you know, in, in, in one form or the other, there's a righteous stumbling block in the sense of proclaiming Christ crucified to the world that hates him, okay? Because the scriptures tell us that Paul preached Christ crucified, and this was a stumbling block not only to the Greek world, uh, also to the Jewish world as well. And he certainly wasn't afraid um, to provoke them in this way, and, and neither should we. But on the other hand, the stumbling blocks that we shouldn't be proclaiming are those that cause our brothers to stumble. But ultimately, Paul is dealing with the implications of the gospel and the dangers of diverting, or should I say, deviating from the truth. Galatians 1.8 really lays it out. He says, but if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And it doesn't take too long reading through the epistles or, or through Romans to understand that Paul's major emphasis is, is that others would understand the gospel. I mean, other people understand the kingdom. That we are, all, we are all one body in Jesus Christ. And that the gospel... If anything is, is, is placed as a stumbling block in the sense to ruin or infect the gospel and no longer make it a gospel is very extremely dangerous. To such an extent, it's dangerous for the one proclaiming the false gospel and it's dangerous to the hearers who are the recipients of a false gospel. And this is the reason why I believe Paul is so adamant in dealing with how we deal with each other in these sensitive areas of worship. We are not given permission nor commanded in Scripture to change or add anything to the gospel. And this is Paul's point. It's not just about offending a weaker brother. It's really about destroying the work of God. Romans 14, 20 says, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Which brings us to our text. Romans 14, verse 14. Paul says, I know... And am convinced, or another word would be persuaded by the Lord Jesus, that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. And then the verse 16 says, Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. 
Do not let your good be spoken of as evil. In this particular chapter, we are dealing with three types of people. The mature, the believer, and the immature and false, well, I should say, the mature believer and the immature believer and the false teachers. Because you kind of see all of these kind of mixed with Paul's warnings as he deals uh, not only with the mature and immature believer, but he also deals with this in the sense of false doctrine and false teachers as well. And these are demonstrated in four segments uh, that we see within the context of these verses, verses 14 through 23. Uh, We see the culture. We see the conscience. We see the conduct. And then ultimately, consecration. It lines up where we're dealing with the culture, the conscience, our conduct, and our consecration. Let's deal with the point one is we're dealing with our culture. Paul obviously was mindful of the culture he was speaking to, both Greek and Jew, uh, Gentile believers and Jewish believers alike, knowing where many have come from, their past and their life experiences. Paul himself knew this well. Paul understood the impact of culture on a person's life and on their world view. We have to really um, digest this as well because we have to understand that our culture today, ultimately at the end of the day, is, is an outpouring of a depraved heart. A lot of people look at the culture and say, and this is true by the way, um, you can be evilly influenced into doing bad things because you hang around with bad people, evil people. And the influence, your Proverbs talks all about you know, being, being associated with bad company and what that can lead to. And it warns you not to be infected with bad company. But on the other hand, it also shows that the culture itself, as vile and as wicked as the culture is, comes from wicked man. comes out of the heart of wicked men. It's a display of the human heart portrayed out into the public view. So what you're seeing is not just nasty people trying to get us. It's the nasty heart being projected out into the world is what that is. So it goes it goes both ways. And Paul understood. I mean, even Paul, you know, wasn't so much in one sense falling short on the worldly side so much, but he was more of the... Um, pharisaical side. He was the religious spiritual person um, which is really grievous to the Lord. Almost in a sense if you read through the Bible you really see most of the time when Christ really confronts somebody harshly it's usually the religious folks the the spiritual elite or the the spiritual prideful people uh, that think they had it all together and knew everything and looked down upon people and were extremely self-righteous and these are usually the people that Uh, Christ really dealt with rather harshly. Listen to Paul's past in Philippians 3, 4. He says, "Though Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In Galatians, Paul said, I profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals in my own nation, being more zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency and the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And you think about that, all those, those, those titles and you know, all of those things that, 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 that he was um, involved in and, and just the, the remarkable past that he had in, in, in the Jewish religion, he counted all of that, all of that, being the Pharisee of Pharisee, the Hebrew of Hebrews, he counted all of that as dung. And it's interesting how his philosophy changed, his world view changed, his culture changed. His turning point in Galatians 15, he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Another version reads it, I did not go to ask advice from any human being. 1 Timothy 1.12, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying and, and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. You can understand why Paul is so adamant about protecting the gospel. Why he's so adamant about confronting issues that could literally get people sidetracked into other realms, preaching another gospel and harming and abusing people's conscience. And ultimately sinning against God and preaching a gospel that doesn't save. Very dangerous. Paul understood what it meant to die. I mean, listen to him in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the exact antithesis of his past prideful life, being all these great things before God, and being so great he felt that he was entitled to murder the church. He says, I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, and in danger from false brothers. Have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone <clears throat> without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I mean, what a, what a complete dichotomy. What a, you know, an, an antithesis of who Paul was. And then you read his bio later on and you just, you think of, you know, that is, a, that is a man whose heart has been changed by the gospel. That is definitely someone who has been confronted by a sovereign God and who has been transformed by the grace of Christ. No one can come out of a life of that much fame and that much power and that much respect 
be broken away from that lifestyle into a lifestyle of utter rejection and dejection and pain and misery and adversary, going without food, starving, shipwrecked, all these things, beaten, stoned, flogged, prison, ends up getting, you know, as history says, beheaded by Nero. I mean, just grapple with these things for a moment. You realize, listen, this guy was converted. This guy was converted. Born again. Because he bears those marks. The reality of those things. And then when he writes, he writes with that same passion. And the same focus. As if a man with a drawn sword. Ready to literally annihilate and take everything out at the root. That comes in contact or tries to pervert or pollute the gospel of grace. And the Christian's freedom. The late great apologist and theologian philosopher Francis Schaeffer once said, the Christian life must be comprised of three concentric circles. Each, he said, must be kept in its proper place. He said this, in the outer circle must be correct theology, true biblical orthodoxy, and the purity of the visible church. The second circle, he said, that one must have good intellectual training. And listen to this, a comprehension, a comprehension of his own generation. In other words, he must understand the culture that he's dealing with. In the inner circle, being the center, one must have a humble heart, the love of God, a devotional attitude towards God, and there must be the daily practice of the reality of the God whom we know is there. Early Christianity in the times of Paul had a lot of religious competitors in his time. To get some idea of the context of the culture that he was actually living in at the time, the two major cults was the cult of Isis and the cult of Mithras. Um, Mithras basically appealed to men. It appealed to the Romans. It was, it was this idol. I mean, obviously it was a false god, but it was the god of war. Uh, it was the personification of men. It's men in, in his perfection. It's this exaltation of the man. Nietzsche himself drew uh, from these teachings heavily in a lot of his writings. The philosopher Nietzsche wrote from this view. What does not kill you, right, makes you stronger. It's this whole idea that comes from this worldview of a Mithras cult, of this exoneration, this, this, this god of war, which really was an all-male type of cult. It really was just a, you know, uh, just provided for men. But the cult of Isis was quite another story. This really appealed uh, to all of, all of the uh, people living in Rome. It had a very strong pull upon people. And these two cults really grew quite extensive and quite wide. But also we had the Roman polytheistic state cults as well. There was many other cults in there as well, a bunch of other idol worship. And then there was the imperial cult, which was really emperor, worshiping emperors. This act of worshiping an emperor. I mean, it sounds disgusting. But you see a lot of that even, even today in, in a lot of our modern politics. The subject of the ethics of the cult is a, really it's a complicated one. We know that Egyptian culture as a whole was free with sexuality compared to Roman culture. Isis was, in fact, rather popular with the courtesans. And I told my wife, I asked my wife yesterday, she knew what a courtesan was. She said, no, we, we, she guessed a few times. But it's a high-profile prostitute. Uh, 
those that basically the the prostitutes that dealt with very rich people and other such professions. And there are speculations that um, the cult of ISIS may have promoted a kind of positive sexuality among it. Positive sexuality is more of like this um, this whole idea that um, we find acceptance with all different views of sexuality. Kind of like what we see today with the LGBTQ and the homosexuals and all of that. It was kind of the same type of worldview of positive sexuality. Uh, it was even seen among the more conservative groups. Augustus and Tiberius uh, took this as proof and they, they basically labeled it a pornographic cult in their day. So could you imagine this, this, this really dominated um, Roman culture in the days of Paul and really basically more or less the bottom line it was a pornographic cult. You know, their, their whole, their whole, you didn't think pornography was back then? I mean, obviously we, we, we see it today like right there's everywhere you turn but like back here there was, I mean, obviously different means but it was, uh, the culture was extremely, extremely pornographic. And extremely bloody, extremely violent, and extremely godless. The cult of Isis was, thanks to um, Ptolemy, was Hellenized to agree that the Roman mind could understand it, and yet still foreign enough to be exotic and alien to keep it attractive. In other words, they made it, they simplified it. They simplified it and made it easy for everyone to join. And it really grew and grew and grew. First century Rome was known to be filled with all kinds of decadence and immorality. From the brutal practices of the arena, the gladiatorial combats found their origin in the rites and sacrifice of these gods, of these, of these cults. These, a lot of these, these, these uh, killings were seen as a way to somehow satisfy these gods. And obviously, you know, sexual immorality of all kinds was everywhere, was everywhere. But many of the Romans and the Greeks confused Judaism with the cults of Dionysus and Isis, um, which they accused of being immoral. Other Greeks and Romans detested circumcision as a form of mutilation, ridiculed the Sabbath as an excuse for laziness, and mocked Jewish food laws as utter foolishness. The only reason I tell you all these things is you can have a kind of an idea what Paul is dealing with when he's bringing these issues up. Because these are the issues that were at hand in his day. These are the kinds of things that the Romans and the Greeks were participating in. These were the cults that dominated his region at the time. And at that time, when Paul was ministering in Rome, there was about a million people in Rome. And you got to remember, a majority of those were in slavery under the more wealthy people. Most of them were. I think it was like 75% um, were in slavery, so you can you can almost imagine uh, just the type of crowd that he was dealing with, and how Paul had to minister to these people, and how he was dealing with these issues when people were coming to faith. You're coming into the kingdom. You're coming into faith. How do you deal with these issues of food? You know, because you look at it this way, but in reality, it's this way. Changing their perspective, showing them. But as they come in, just you guys, you mature brothers and sisters in Christ, just remember these guys are coming from that world into our world. And just remember, you want to make sure that you're using utmost sensitivity to make sure that you're not causing them to stumble. And and, and, for, and, and please don't make it a gospel issue. 
Because this is where the problem will occur. Because once they're converted, once they know they're born again, once they come into the family of God, they're bringing their whole worldview with them. They're going to look at you when you're eating that meat like you're totally sinning against God because of where they've come from. They're going to look at you in certain ways, not because they were all doing these things towards God in the beginning. It's because a lot of these cults had ceremonies very similar to Judaism. A lot of this stuff was very compatible. As a matter of fact, it became so, it became so closely compatible that, that they could almost join them together. But that's when you see the Christian apologists, the true ones, jump in and start dealing with these issues, confronting these issues, and then Christianity just grows and goes. Um, so it, the culture was a very was a very big issue, you know, and it's like you don't just want to continue to stress about the culture, the culture, the culture. But you do have to understand when Paul's writing and what he's dealing with with the church in Rome. You have to understand what issues came along with that kind of past, and as well as with us as well as the church. People come in the door, you know, they don't want to be cornered and interrogated with our Reformed theology. They come in the door. We have to be sensitive. We don't know. First of all, we don't know where they're coming from. We don't know what they've been in. We don't know if they've been abused. We have no idea. They just they just had a, a bad uh, situation with their church. We don't know if they were spiritually abused. They, they came out of a situation that was extremely ugly and polluted and toxic. And they just come out of a situation where 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 they were uh, a lot of these um, things were imposed upon them or that were not of God, we're not in the Bible, and you've got these cultish type churches that are trying to impose things upon people that, that, that aren't in the scripture, and people get hurt, people get abused, and it takes a long time to unravel and be healed from that stuff, and we as a church don't want to function that way. Paul's warning us, the Spirit of God through these verses is warning us not to behave like this, not to do these things. It goes beyond just a piece of meat and trying to watch out so this guy doesn't get offended. It goes beyond that. These are gospel implications. It has an effect on the entire body of Christ. It has an entire on a soul, an effect on a person. People coming in, we have to be ready to minister to them, not jump on them like a rooster on a June bug. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta be sensitive to people. And we've got to be able to know how to function in this way. It's extremely important. Jesus said in Matthew 15 11, he says, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. Out of the abundance of the heart, right? The mouth speaks. Is your heart a sewer? Or is it the abode of God? Because basically what he's saying here, what comes out of you, it's not everything out there that's after you, all the evil in the world. Go hide from everybody, be a rabbit hole Christian. No, it's what's coming out of you that's dangerous. So it's coming out of you that's dangerous. And, and this is what Jesus is saying. The defiling is the heart. In Acts 10, 13, it says, The Lord had told Peter, then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, Surely not, Lord. Peter replied, I have not eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. There's nothing inherently evil about a day or food, brothers and sisters, just so you know. There's nothing inherently evil about a day, right? Or food. Is your piece of meat sinful? No, it's the object is the heart. It's the motive of the heart. It's our worship to God. 
Romans 14, 5 says, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let, let each be fully convinced, fully persuaded in his own mind. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he who gives thanks, give, gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. Do you see the freedom there? Do you see what Paul's dealing with here? Do you see the, the relief there, the rest that we have in Christ? We are complete and rooted and grounded in Christ as a believer. Uh, meat and holidays and holy days, and these things don't dictate who we are. Paul says in, in, in Romans 14, 14, I know and am convinced or persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean in itself. This is Paul talking. He lays it all out. He's, he's completely convinced. He's completely convinced that nothing is unclean of itself. He's not worried about it. He's truly convinced that his stand in Christ is sure. It's point two. I'll move through these quicker, guys. Uh, the conscience. The conscience. Conscience actually means conscience. Actually means with knowledge. That God is built within each of us. We're made in the image of God. That we have the knowledge of right and wrong. You know it's wrong to lie, right? You know it's wrong to steal. You know it's wrong to look with lust. You know these things are wrong. Why? Because God has given each of us a, com- a conscience. In Romans 2.14 it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And this is interesting here because it's talking about a, an accused conscience or an excused conscience. You, you know, as far as a heart that has been made right with God is an excused conscience. A heart that's still not right with God is an accused conscience. So the reality is, are you still under the accusation of Almighty God, a holy God that's holding you accountable to all of your law-breaking, to all of your sinfulness? You sinned against God. Today, in this assembly, you sit here and you're unconverted. And you know by your own conscience that you have sinned against God. You've sinned against a holy God. And you deserve His wrath. But yet you sit there unmoved, cold as ice, could care less. As the Bible says in Romans, that there is no fear of God in their eyes. You're not scared. You don't care. But the reality is, this is truth. This is truth. If you are not in Christ... If you haven't landed on Christ, if He isn't your total and complete salvation, then you are fully under an accusative conscience, under the accusation and under the wrath of God. And I would appeal to you today, whether you feel it or not, to turn to Christ, flee to Christ, trust in Christ. you and die in your sin. Because, you know, the Lord has a million ways of taking out people. He does. Most of the time, people that get taken out don't ever expect it, don't ever get a, you know, they don't get a bedside experience. A lot of times, when you're taken out, you're taken out unexpectedly. And my goal as, as a pastor of this church, and a preacher, and a brother, and a friend, whatever you want to call me, to you today, is to make sure that I am not guilty of not preaching the true word of God to your souls today. And if you're not converted, you're not saved, you've not come to Christ, I would appeal to you, beg you, by the mercies of God, to, to, to come to Christ, to turn to Him, to repent of your sin. 
Believe upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, and you shall be saved. In Romans 14, 15, it says, Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Proverbs 15, 15 says, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but a good conscience, listen, is a continual feast. For the believers in here today, those of you who believe in Christ, trust in Christ, the greatest blessing on this planet, outside of your salvation, is a clean conscience. The greatest curse on this planet, as a believer, is a filthy conscience. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's not talking about an unbeliever. It's not hard for an unbeliever to sin. It's easy. It's our nature. It comes natural. But the way of the transgressor, the way of those who know Christ, that have tasted the goodness of God, and yet walk contrary to His Word, it's painful. It's painful to live a life that's contrary to the Christian life, to the Gospel, when you're converted. It's against the grain. But a clean conscience is a continual feast. A continual feast. It's that freedom that really just gives you a sense of being able to do the things that you would have never thought you could do before. It's, a, it's an unhidden strength. Unhinged strength. And this is why those who are bowled over with lust and all of these things, the first thing that's hit is the conscience. When the conscience is hit, then your strength is removed. And you're just a towering mess. First Corinthians 8 9 says, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Pretty strong here, dealing with the conscience, dealing with the, the conscience of, of, of the younger, weaker believer. Not always younger, obviously, because a, an older person can come to faith and still have a very weak, weak conscience. Um, and we need to be very sensitive to the way we behave. Which brings us to our third point, is conduct. Our conscience usually will, the state of our conscience, the condition of our conscience, usually will determine our conduct as well. Look at what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned. What did they do? What's the first thing that they did? Then what did they do? They began to what? Sow. They began to work. For what they lost. They try to they try to win back what they lost by works. They began to sell. They began to work. They tried to somehow regain uh, the relationship with God, reconcile it through good works. And it's the conscience. Once the conscience is affected in such a way, the conscience, a guilty conscience, a lot of times will compensate uh, for their for their professed faith in Christ. They'll compensate in good works. They'll be just um, infatuated with doing, 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 doing. They'll be just so caught up in so much just working. And really, a lot of times, the work's not coming from a conscience that's been cleansed by the blood of Christ. It's not coming from a sense of, of love, uh, as Brother Trey had responded to me in his text. The actions and the motives and the actions aren't coming from a place of love. They're coming from a place of guilt. It's become penance. You know, everything you do is just really because you're guilty. And then you're angry when you do it. 
<laughs> so it's 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 kind of a catch twenty two. It's like you know, I just feel like I've got to do something for Christ, but you're doing it because you're being religious about it, and you're trying to. You're just you got a guilty conscience, maybe a defiled conscience, and instead of repenting, you're trying to just do a bunch of stuff, and it becomes nothing more than than penance, um, which really does nothing. Look what look what look what the Lord says in Isaiah one thirteen and fourteen. He said, first of all, Paul's whole idea here is this. It's not about the meat. It's not about the days. It's not about festivals. It's not about your fasting. It's not about your ministry. It's not about your head coverings or long dresses. It's about the heart. And this is when he brings Isaiah in. He says, Isaiah 1 says, Do not go on bringing your worthless offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your Sabbath, this proclamation of an assembly, I cannot endure wrongdoing and the festive assembly. I hate your new moon festivals. I hate your appointed feast. Well, didn't God invent these? Weren't these feasts God's idea? Yes, all these things were inventions of God. All these things are God's idea, but it's what they turned them into. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of bearing them. And this is, this is the same thing today. We can find ourselves doing so many things and so busy but yet, it's all done from a guilty conscience. All done from a guilty conscience. Not from a thankful conscience. Not from a, a continual feast in mind. Paul says in Colossians 2.8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Doubtful things, as verse 1 said. After the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Colossians 2.16 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of a holiday, or the new moon, or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is of Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. You don't have to run around like a chicken with its head cut off. Because your satisfaction is this reality that you, brothers and sisters, are complete in Christ. It's not your meat. It's not your holiday. It's not your Sabbath. It's not how you dress. You are complete in Christ. You want to know why you're complete in Christ? Because the Bible says that once you once you put your faith in Christ, everything that Christ has is given to you. It's transferred to your account. So whatever Christ did, which was perfection, he obeyed the law perfectly. Whatever the law demanded, Christ satisfied. Christ kept what about the tassels? Christ kept that law too. So by faith, the Bible says we put on what? Christ. Whatever Christ had, we have by faith. It may not be physically seen, but the reality is that we are made complete before God through Christ. That is the beauty and the reality of the Christian life, that we have been made complete in Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility. This whole idea of people bawling over a piece of meat, or this or that, don't, don't be fooled by that. Because a lot of cults, they like to cry. Right? They like to get you trapped, and they like to bawl a lot about certain things and chase you around. But Paul said, let no one deceive you. Let no one judge you. Let no one cheat you. These are all dealing with the same issues. 
I know it's broad. I know it's broad. But the situation is worthy to put together because you have immature believers. You have mature believers. But you do have those who take these and they run with these. They form cults. They form false religions. They, they do all kinds of things. They cheat you and they deceive you and they rob you of the precious beauty of the gospel. And this is why we have to be extra sensitive to all these realities as the body of Christ. Verse 20 says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern the things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of who? Of men. Verse 23 of Colossians, here it's 2.23, it says, These things indeed, listen now, have an appearance of wisdom. They have an appearance. They're not wisdom. It's not wisdom. It has an appearance of wisdom with self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Paul said in Galatians 12, As many of you as desire to make a good show in the flesh. You want to make a good show in the flesh because you want people to conform to your image and not the image of Christ. For he says, For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in, boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and the and me to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And that principle can be applied to anything. The only thing that matters is that you're a new creation. That's the only thing that ultimately matters before God is that you are born again. Everything else will take care of itself. Paul says in verse 17, from now on, let no one trouble me. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want me to carry something as proof of my love for God? Well, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's my profession. There's my testifying reality that I am of God. Not by chewing on this piece of meat or keeping this day or not keeping this day or wearing this or not wearing that. My marks, brother and sister, I bear them in my body, and these are the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the testifying realities that I'm truly alive to the Lord Christ. And last point, which I'll finish quickly, is our consecration, our dedication. And we can't just leave it there, because then you're thinking, okay, all the thing that matters, there is, is there any sanctifying reality to our lifestyle? Absolutely. But when you're born again, and the true gospel has infected us, and we trust and live by that gospel, we grow in the gospel of grace, healthy and biblical. But anytime you're placing somebody else, something else in that area of the gospel, say, yes, the gospel plus wearing long dresses. Well, it's the gospel plus you got to keep the Sabbath. Well, it's the gospel, but you have to eat this. It's the gospel, but you, but you have to do this too. You have to, it's the gospel, but you have to read the King James Version only. Do you see what I'm saying? It's all these other things that are thrown in there. Paul's dealing with, he's very sensitive because he himself lived that life of change and transformation. He knew what that was like. And he knew that the people coming into the kingdom, coming into the church, would have all kinds of baggage. And this is where the sensitivity comes. Not just to be sensitive to each other, 
but to be sensitive for the sake of the gospel. We don't want to destroy the gospel and destroy the soul in the process. We want to make sure, ultimately, at the end of the day, that we're glorifying God in everything that we do. And how do we do that? By making sure the purity of the gospel is being preached. And the last and the point is our consecration. Really, it's our, it, Consecration really means dedicated to a sacred purpose. That we are dedicated to Christ. Romans 14, 19 says, let us, Romans 14, 19 says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and the things wherewith one may edify another. It boils down to this. In verse 22, he says, Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself, conscience, in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not of faith is sin. 1 Timothy 1.19 says, Having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith that suffered shipwreck. Same point, same situation here. That is by faith that we do these things. Not for any other reason. It testifies of our faith in Christ. We need to pursue the things which make for peace, brothers and sisters, that we may edify one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together. Edify one another, even as you do. And this would be a point for you this morning that we would realize that the last thing that we want to do, the last thing we want to do is destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And the principle is we don't want to, first, we don't want to destroy the work of God for the sake of anything else. All things indeed are pure, pure but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. 22, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God, and happy is he who does not condemn himself for what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith, Paul's pointing us back to the gospel over and over and over and over again. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And this is how we need to live the Christian life. Let us be motivated by that reality. That our motivation, you know, doesn't come for any other reason than to glorify God and, and, and to honor and to 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 be at peace and to edify, to edify each other as we continue to live our lives um, for the Lord and the Christian life. Let's not get entangled and try to find our identity in ministries and all these things because all it becomes is just a source of distraction and a source of anger and a source of penance. Uh, let, let, the, let the overflow of our lives be from what Christ has accomplished for us upon the cross and who we are as believers and how we can bless one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, we ask you, God, today that you would... You would